Whether our goals are related to our personal or professional lives, having a coach in your corner can be the difference between achieving those goals or not. Hear from the business, health, and life coaches who care about putting you on a path towards success on the Coach's Corner Podcast. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce. Welcome to the Coach's Corner Podcast. Today I'm joined by Bridget O'Shaughnessy, Restorative Practices Coach. Bridget, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. It has been a real honor getting to connect with you and learn a little bit about you and what you do, but I think where we can start off, because there seems to be you know, some, um, maybe some clarity that needs to be to address when it comes to what is restorative practices, restorative justice, and, you know, th- those restorative words, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I'd love to talk about it. So you're right. Restorative justice, I feel like, is a word that we've become more familiar with mm-hmm. in the last 20, 30 years in the U.S., yeah. but it's one that has a lot of misunderstanding, I think. Um, People maybe have a a sense or an intuition when they hear the words, but they don't always know what it contains. So one way that I like to describe it, there are two thought leaders in our field, Kathy Evans and Dorothy Vandering, and they describe it like a stool with three legs. So the first leg of the stool is how do we build healthy, fulfilling, and positive relationships. And that can be teacher to teacher. It could be student to student. It could be teacher to student, right? How do we really make schools a place that feel alive, joyful, warm, positive places where people want to be? So that's the first leg. The second leg is, okay, we've got these great relationships, but we all know humans, there's going to be conflict. And so instead of thinking of what rules have we broken, restorative justice says, how has the relationship been harmed and how do we actually repair the relationship? And when conflict arises, instead of seeing it as something we should be afraid of, something we should avoid, it says conflict is kind of juicy, right? How do we use it as an opportunity for transformation? And then the third leg of the stool is how do we build just and equitable learning environments? And so we've got these healthy relationships, we're transforming conflict, but then we have to look at the system, right? Is this just, is this equitable for young people, for families, and for the adults that actually make a school run? And if we can think on the macro level about that, then we're also really doing restorative justice in its fullness. And one of the things that was very... um just interested to hear about was how this is something that has existed or um, maybe the blueprint of it, right? They're not called that necessarily, but those those systems have been put in place into different societies and different cultures throughout, and you can trace them back to indigenous peoples, right? Yes. It almost seems that like for how quickly we grew as a society that sometimes uh, it could easily be seen as greed took over and things just got out of hand and now all of a sudden you know we're having a look at uh, at our mistakes and and now we're learning or relearning this culturally right can you kind of expand on that and just and, and how this is not a new thing and that in order for a, a community to really be successful or thrive we need to have these Uh, checks and balances in place? Yeah, for sure. So um, another thought leader in our field is Kay Pranis. She's been around for decades doing this work, and she has a wonderful book. It's called Circle Forward. And one of the things she talks about in that book is that there are seven core principles of restorative justice. And the first one is that inside everybody is what is good, wise, and powerful. It's like your core self. Ultimately, we get away from that core self for a whole lot of reasons, but the really the root of restorative justice is finding that place within us 
that is wise and knowing and seeing if we can as often as possible come from that place. Hmm. And so one of the ways that Kay Pranis talks about is that we have to build practices to come from that core self. And one of the ways we do that is through restorative chats, peace circles, talking circles, where we really have to slow ourselves down, tap into our heart, and speak from a vulnerable, open, and honest place where we share power instead of having power over. And so one really cool story that she talks about in that book, and this is an indigenous story, is this old grandfather is talking to his grandson. And he says, inside of every human being, there are two wolves, right? One of the wolves is pure, positive, hopeful, joyful, sees what is possible in this world. The other wolf is angry and full of greed and resentment, frustration, sadness, loneliness. And the little boy says, yeah, but which wolf wins? And the grandfather says, it's the wolf that you feed. And so ultimately, that's what we're doing in restorative practices. We're feeding that wolf of connection. We're feeding that wolf of joy. But that requires consciousness and intention. Um, And that's something that's been happening in indigenous communities forever. Um, We've just suddenly woken up, I think, in the Western world, that there's a different way to do things than how we've been doing it. Absolutely. No, and I think, I mean, it is a big waking up, and there is a big awakening, and we're seeing that. And I think it also has its, I don't want to say risks, because everything is a a learning, you know, uh, process where you look at the way that you react to something, do something, and then you go, oh, this didn't really quite pan out the way we thought it would, right? And we're having to retroactively uh, make, you know, corrections to these mistakes. And kind of that's the same way with you in terms of just the way that you got to this point, right? And yeah. it's not it's not something you set out or intended to to do or have a career in, right? Definitely not. Tell me about how it all, I guess, took a turn for you. Yeah. So I, um, previous to the work I'm doing now, I actually started and ran a nonprofit for about a decade. It's still around today. And it uses documentary theater to talk about mental health. So mental health has been in my world for quite some time. But I knew that even though I loved the power of theater to wake people up, to spark conversation, to disarm stigma, I wanted to be more on the ground floor. And now your love and really passion was for theater to start off, right? That's really how this whole thing started for you? Yes, for sure. I started off as a theater person, actor, director, teacher, but I knew I wanted to do theater that mattered. And so I ended up finding my way to Thresholds, which is a psychosocial rehab program for adults with mental illness that led me to ultimately go, wait a minute, this stuff exists in more places than just thresholds. I want to start something bigger. So I started the nonprofit. But what I realized was like, okay, I can spread all the awareness I want to, but unless we get down on the ground floor and work with people in a more long-term and intimate way, there's only so much change we can make. And so about 10 plus years ago, I became a parent. Um, I adopted my son from Haiti. And through the journey we were experiencing, I was getting to know the mental health system in a totally different way. Mm. And I realized, okay, I want to go back and, and get my degree in social work. So I went to the University of Chicago. And while I was there, they place you in your first internship. And I had worked in schools previously. So I didn't It wasn't new territory, but I didn't necessarily go to grad school thinking, okay, I'm going to work in schools. But they're like, hey, first internship, you're working at a school. And so I was doing play therapy with kids there. And what I realized was like, okay, I can do really 
personal, intimate, deep work with students, helping them understand their story, understanding their families of origin, looking at where they want to go in the future. But if we don't address the system as a whole, there's only so far we can go, right? I can have a great session with a kid, but if they go back into the classroom and they're yelled at, misunderstood, kicked out, and sent to the front desk or the office, they're given suspensions because people don't understand their behavior, we're not making enough progress to actually see change. And so in starting to work at that macro level within schools, all of a sudden this opportunity to do restorative justice work arrived and it merged with what I was learning in my classes. And I was like, you know what? This addresses the system because it helps us to rethink, even redefine discipline. I think we think of discipline as punishment and it's just discipline is the nicer word for it. But discipline actually, it does not mean that. No, not at all. No, it means to teach and guide. So our, like we talk about Jesus's disciples, right? He wasn't there to punish them. He was there to teach and guide them. And so that's where the root word discipline comes from. So how do we think about guiding and teaching children instead of feeling like we need to punish them in order to create change? What's the most, um, <clears throat> I guess, eye-opening or, or transformative aspect of this for you that you didn't have or believe in or um, or even just weren't aware of it prior to this type of work that you're doing? Oh, gosh. I, the story that comes to mind is because I like to think about it not just as restorative justice but as transformative justice. Mm. So because ultimately – we might not want to restore things to the way they were before. We actually have to shift things to a way we've never imagined. So um, at the school I'm working at now, we actually had a couple students last year who were given in-school suspension. Now, the school previously had done out-of-school suspension, which I'm definitely not a fan of. In-school suspension, I still have feelings about, but it's at least a little bit better mm. than what we were doing before. And these students had basically said something sexually inappropriate to a teacher and about a teacher. And so the impulse initially was to bring them for this in-school suspension where they were gonna learn about how inappropriate that was. Luckily, I had just started at the school and I was like, would you mind if I kind of took this? And they're like, yeah, no problem. So the very first thing that I do is actually not talk about what went wrong or what the quote unquote bad behavior was, but instead I wanna get to know you as people. So let's hang out. Let's spend time. Let's play cards. Let me hear about your family. And so all three of these boys were like, what the heck is going on? Like, you're not lecturing us. You're not telling us what we did wrong and how we need to fix it. You're literally just curious about who we are. So we did that for like a good couple hours. And then I was like, hey, you guys, I'd love to like teach you guys how to do a talking circle so I can hear about your perspective about what happened and get your ideas for solutions. And so these three boys were like, okay, so we sat down and as we started discussing what happened, they were like, I think part of why it happened is because we actually don't know how to talk about sexuality. They're like, and frankly, we're kind of confused because there are these gender differences that we notice. And I was like, okay, like what? They're like, well, the girls can talk to us about our bodies. The girls can talk to us about our attractiveness. The girls can make sexual comments to us and nothing happens. But when we say it, we're viewed as predators. We're viewed as harassers. We're viewed as like potential future abusers. And so we don't really understand like what's okay to say, what's not okay to say. And frankly, like 75% of the kids in our class speak the same way. We're just the ones that got caught. 
And I was like, okay. And they were like, also, our bodies are changing. And we don't know what to do with the fact that our bodies are changing. We don't know how to be in relationships. We don't know how to deal with our hormones. I was like, okay, so what do you think we should do about it? And they were like, well, what if we used this concept of circles, but instead had sexual education classes where we had a chance to talk about boundaries, to talk about consent, to talk about healthy relationships, to talk about our bodies, to learn how our bodies work. I was like, that's a great idea. So the result of that conversation wasn't punishment, let's go call your parents. It was saying, let's view this conflict as an opportunity to transform our system. And so they actually sat down with the principal and pitched their idea. They were like, we want comprehensive sex education because we think that would actually be the most just way of dealing with this situation. I would never have thought, even when I first started learning about restorative justice, I knew it was about repairing harms and repairing relationships, but I didn't necessarily see it as a launching pad to transform a system. And so now that school is actually doing sex education this year in the comprehensive way they're mandated to do, but doing it with a really student-centered voice, which is super exciting. And which, again, kind of goes back to that mantra that you preach of being seen and heard, right? That yes. oftentimes it's just that, that people don't feel like they are. 100%. I feel like in schools we don't because think about it. We've really prioritized, even with the COVID pandemic, this idea of learning loss. Oh, kids are grade levels behind. Yes, that's true. But if you really think about it, we're not there just to pass content to kids. We're actually there to help build human beings. And so ultimately, they're going to forget what they learned in math class, but they're not going to forget how to actually look someone in the eye, how to deeply listen to somebody else, how to empathize with somebody else's perspective, how to be vulnerable and share their own experiences in a way that feels courageous and centered. Those are the things they're going to take forward into their work life, into their families, into their relationships. And we forget a lot of times to prioritize that. And so that, to me, is also the center of restorative justice is how do we make schools relational places where people say, someone saw me today, someone cared about me today, someone valued me and loved me today. That's ultimately, I think, what we want schools to be. Yeah, no. And, you know, obviously you're working with <clears throat> students and, and young people, right? And there's a hope that these behaviors that we see in adults today change. But what you're really looking at in terms of behaviors with adults today are untreated behaviors from childhood that really no one is teaching anyone yes. how to interact with one another, right? That this society is basically prioritized um, this system of school. You go in, you have to, you get graded on these things that really, I don't want to say don't matter, but in the grand scheme of things, maybe don't matter as much as we think, you know, they do. How has this now shape the way that you approach um i don't want to say that you're doing this necessarily with adults but as as you start to or develop this right um uh, how has that changed what you see as a possibility or opportunity to make an impact in the adult world yeah right where people have developed these uh, um it goes beyond character traits right now it's personality Right, where you have these things as children that don't develop into that yet. And it could be bad habits, but they're not personality traits yet. Yeah. yeah how, how do you combat that? How do you change that? What's, what, what hope do we have for, for us? I think we have a lot of hope. It's, I'm really glad you asked that question, Tony, because actually a large part of what I do is not with youth. 
it's with adults. Oh, it is. So yes. So when I got brought into the schools I'm at now, it's as a coaching consultant for teachers, for staff, for paraprofessionals, for security, for administration. I get to work with students as a byproduct of that, but really it's about doing exactly what you're talking about. How do we help adults shift their mindset, learn new language, and learn new practices for being with young people? And it can be in these very intentional, um, structured ways, but they can also happen in very simple ways. So you might have seen this video. It's a wonderful video. It's all over the internet of this teacher who basically walks in every day stands at the doorway to his classroom, and he does a different high-five signal with every single kid before they walk into the class, right? And they all have their own dance moves, and it's all personalized and individual. And I'm not him, but I would imagine his intention is to say, you've walked here, you're about to come into my classroom, and I want you to know I see you. You matter to me. I'm taking the time to notice and look. And so that's a lot of what I do with teachers. How can I get you to slow down, and look at your student with curiosity, with compassion, with sensitivity, with wonder. So even with behavior as an example, if I'm working with a teacher and let's say they have like a difficult student, a lot of times they want me to come in initially and like fix the kid. And I'm like, okay, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to think about this in a slightly different way. So let's say they have a challenging kid. I'm like, okay, put on your hat and be a detective sit down and what do you notice? Oh, okay, that kid seems like they're getting up and down from their seat a lot. Hmm, maybe they need to move. Maybe their body's telling us something. How do we listen to that kid's body with curiosity instead of immediately with sit down, stop doing that, you're disrupting the class, go to the office, instead looking at it through the lens of wonder. And so that's a lot of what I do with adults is how do we help you look at students through a lens of wonder, but also take accountability because you're part of a dynamic. And so if that kid is acting up, let's say, they're not living in a vacuum. They're bouncing off what's in the room with you and with what's going on with the other students. So how do we help you take accountability? Maybe you were having an off day. Maybe you were stressed when you walked into school because you were late, you ran into traffic. How do we help you regulate your own nervous system so when you show up with that kid, you can come from as grounded of a place as possible. And I think a lot of teachers aren't used to thinking that way. No, 100%. And the thing that came to mind, and I'm assuming it's much of the same answer, but I'd love to hear it from, from your perspective. But it's easier, I think, to have um, that sense of wonder when it comes to a child and just kind of look at it from, from that place as an adult and, and have that uh, dichotomy, right? But how, how do you have that when it's an adult, right? What what practical advice would you give to those listening to be able to transmute a situation with someone who's not behaving in that way, but still applying some of those skills so that you can regulate those emotions, but also have a more positive outcome rather than succumb to those emotions and, and act or react from, you know, that place of anger or frustration? Well, so one thing you and I were talking about earlier was this concept of treat other people the way you want to be treated. I think a lot of times we forget that as adults. And so just one common example I'll give to teachers is I'll say, okay, you've got that kid, they walked in late. Do you ever have the impulse to say, you're late again, go to the office? Chances are you do, because we all do. Now, if you walked in here late and I said, you're late again, go to the office, 
what would come up for you? And they're like, oh my God, I would be embarrassed. I'd feel ashamed. I'd feel guilty. I'd feel awkward. I might even feel angry at you for calling me out, especially if it was in front of a group of people. I'm like, that's exactly how the kid feels. So if you come in late, and oftentimes people do to my workshops or trainings because they get called to other things, one of the things I model is they walk in the door and they go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I'm late. And I go, I am so glad you're here. Your timing is perfect. And they go, okay. And then I'm like, let's say that to the students. So the next time that kid comes in, say, I'm so glad you're here. Your timing is perfect. And they go, oh my gosh, I've been doing that more with the kids. And they react completely different. I'm like, yes, it's because you're giving them what you would want to receive as an adult. Right. A lot of times my adults will say to me like, wow, you know, I get reprimanded for not having my curriculum figured out or, oh, I feel like I'm always being watched because I'm going to get a ding on my record if I didn't have X, Y, Z done. I'm like, that's how the students feel. And so if you don't want to feel that way, how do you want to feel? And they're like, I want support. I want resources. I want compassion. I want curiosity. I'm like, great. Let's do that with them, too and see what happens. No, that's great, great practical advice. And I love it. And, and it comes to mind too, that people will always rise up um, to the expectation you have of them, right? They will always live up to that expectation you have of them. And so often I think um, we do, we have to take ownership of, of you know, how we create our own realities, even if it is expecting others to, to be late. Like, hey, you're always this. And when you use those, uh, um, you know, absolute, you know, like always, yes. that, um, it doesn't bode well for you, right? And so, how, what what advice also when and then there are people who makes it it's a little easier for them to let go of those emotions. But when something is, you know, that's your pet peeve, right? And and you're like, this is my this is my boundary. This is my and you've crossed it, and, and now I'm angry, now I'm frustrated, upset, whatever it is, right? That this emotion. What what about getting over that first, so you can get to that place where now you can start to change the narrative of. You're always late, but applying some of these skills and, and yeah, it just seems even even just for me thinking about it that way, if it's really a pet peeve of yours, it's probably really difficult to overcome that that onset of emotions that you get um, when it initially happens and to be able to kind of work through that. What advice would you give to get through that emotion? Mm. So I'm kind of having two thoughts. One is anytime somebody charges a lot in us, right? They activate a lot in us. Can we be curious about that? Because chances are they're our spiritual teacher. They are giving us something that we need to look at that we might not want to, right? So let's say my pet peeve is lateness, right? Okay, well, what is it about lateness that's my pet peeve? Well, it could be that I don't want to let other people down, right? I don't want to seem unreliable. I don't want to seem irresponsible. I don't want to seem untrustworthy. Hmm, okay. So that's activating that up in me because if I am untrustworthy, unreliable, then what does that mean? Oh, does that mean I'm unlovable? Does that mean I'm unwantable? Does that mean I'm going to be lonely for the rest of my life? Right? So that continual look inside to say to that other person, thank you, because you're, that trigger is actually giving me a chance to do deeper personal work and to find out what that's about and what I'm afraid to look at. So I feel like that's maybe one piece of advice. The other thing that you said that struck me was the concept of boundaries. I think a lot of times 
we think of boundaries as like, you are doing something to cross my boundaries, so you have to change. As opposed to boundaries are what I am willing to accept or not accept. So if it's something like, wow, you spoke to me in a really unkind way, you need to stop that. Instead saying, wow, you know what? I have a boundary around people speaking to me in an unkind way. So next time that happens, I just want to let you know, I plan to leave the situation so that I can feel safe again. And then I can return when maybe we can have a different conversation. So that puts the ball in my court to make the adjustment instead of expecting the other person to adjust and then having my own emotional reaction to that. Those are both very, very good pieces of advice. <laughs> and and ultimately, like when you start to create this and you see the impact, I mean, it's easy to see, I think, um, the impact in one's life, right? Where you start to, you know, just have better experiences and you can say, wow, this, this situation that was always like this with this person or with this, you know, thing is that it's now different, right? Because of that. What are some of the things that when you think about even like a community like ours, right, where it's this conglomerate or this, you know, just this melting pot of of different backgrounds and stories and industries, what's the benefit it has to a community? And and how do you start to see, you know, if if one bad apple can uh, ruin the batch, right, that the bunch, that it is really about having that one kind of catalyst where if you have someone... doing this and teaching, advocating for this, that it can really transform a community as well as you've seen in a school. How, what are some of those things that can be expected, should be hoped for when you start to apply this to not just the practice of one, but the practice of many? Like, what can you see in that community evolve to? Hmm. Those are great questions. I feel like I go back to that stool image again, right? I think if we first start with building relationships, what you see in a community is joy play, curiosity, unabashed love. I mean, I don't know. One of the things that I notice in the schools I work at is that when I walk into a room, the kids are like, Miss Bridget, and they all go wild. And I think a lot of it is because I show up to say, I see you. I love you. I care about you. Even on days, let's say when we've tried to do a circle and it hasn't worked because they've been squirrely or they haven't been in the mood. I don't say to them, oh, you're not doing the circle, forget it, it's not working, I'm not coming back. Instead I say like, I'm not mad at all, right? Some days we're just not in the space, some days we're not in the mood, that's okay, I still love you, I'm coming back tomorrow and they're like, okay. So I think it creates this permission for authenticity, for vulnerability, for um, messiness, right? Where we don't always get things right but we're still gonna show up for each other. And so I think that that can make a community, any community, this community that you're building here. I think if we go in right away saying we don't expect perfection, but we expect to keep showing up, to keep attuning to each other, to keep having a sense of wonder and openness to each other, what's possible? But then I think on that piece of repairing harm, that's also really important too, because I think as a world, we don't know how to do that. That's why we just dissociate from each other we disconnect, we let relationships kind of falter or just slide away, disappear, because we're not comfortable saying, I messed up. I wasn't there. I pulled from the emotional bank account and I didn't put anything back in. And that's, I think people are so afraid to do that because they think people are going to walk away, but they walk away more easily when we don't do that. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's how we build stronger families. I think it's how we build stronger partnerships, stronger relationships, and stronger communities when we can acknowledge our fallibility. Wow. All very powerful and, you know, just wisdom, pure wisdom. And I appreciate it. If people are interested in reaching out to you, finding out more, how can they find you on social media, online? Yeah, so I'm kind of old school, I'll admit. You can definitely find me on LinkedIn under Bridget O'Shaughnessy. My name's a little unusually spelled, so it's that B-R-I-G-H-I-D. Um, I'm on Facebook. My 12-year-old son makes fun of me for that because he's like, no one's on Facebook anymore. But um, Bridge O's. I should say that again, Bridge OS on Facebook. You can find me there. And um, you can always reach out to me via email at BridgetOsh at yahoo.com. Beautiful. I appreciate it, Bridget. Thank you so much for sharing your story and also just being a part of this community. You're welcome. I'm really glad to be here.